0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. All right, you in John chapter 3? You need to get there, because we're going to tear these verses up. Last week, we looked at Nicodemus, right? The best that man had to offer. He was not only a Jew, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, which means that he was incredibly self disciplined, he was devout, and he was the teacher in Israel. And he comes to Jesus with a question on his mind What was that question? Wanted to know about the kingdom. And Jesus blows his mind and basically says, the kingdom, Nicodemus, you won't even see the kingdom unless you are what? Born again. And this blew Nicodemus' mind, which it should have, because Jesus is saying you must be born again, because only physical can birth the physical, and only spiritual can birth the spiritual, When we're born, we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And the fact is, you have no more um, power over your spiritual birth than you actually did your physical birth. So yes, Nicodemus, you are correct. This is impossible. It's as impossible as jumping back into your mother's womb. Spirit must be born of spirit. You must be born from above. And his mind is spinning, like, how how can this be? And Jesus says, let me tell you how this can be. Just like Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we talked about this. I told you the whole story last week. In other words, you have to look and live. I will be raised up to be what? He who had no sin, became sin for us. Remember, what was killing them in the Old Testament story in Numbers? The serpents. And so they had to believe God's word, look at what was killing them, believe and live, look and live. And he's saying the same. Nicodemus, all that you have done, the fact that you're a Jew, all that you have learned, all of your piety, all of that will not gain you entrance into the kingdom. The only way you can be in the kingdom is to be born again, to have a spiritual awakening, become a new creature in Christ Jesus, how? Because I have come, I will be lifted up like the bronze serpent, I will become what is killing you. I will pay the debt, believe, look and live. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. It is not through works, lest any man should boast. And this is the message that we were coming out of from last week. And then he's still talking. So just because we've had a couple of weeks off, don't let this, he is still in this discourse. And so he goes on by telling him, you need to understand Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I believe that's one of the greatest verses in the gospel. It tells us the motivation of God for sending Jesus. What is it? What is his motivation? For God so loved. 1 John 4.10 says this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. He took the initiative, and it was motivated by love, unconditional love, loving us right where we are. Well, where were we? Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knew exactly what he was choosing to love. I thought about this uh, Psalm 139. What does it tell us? God completely, how would you sum up that Psalm? He completely knows us. He knows us. He knew when we were conceived, he saw us formed in our mother's womb. He is familiar with every stage of our life. He knows every thought before it even drops on the tongue to become a word. He knows it all. Listen, when, when you think about human love, and I know many of you haven't dated for a while, but think about it. If you went on a date, you always do what? Put on your best look, okay, in, in every way your best look outwardly, your person whatever. You are trying to impress. You show them the good, right? It takes a long time and maybe you never get to it, depending on who you are, to show them the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you always wonder, well, if they knew, would they love? We don't have that with God. Do you understand? Everything is laid bare before him. He knows you completely. He knows every thought, every deed, every action. It says all of your days are written in his book. That means he knows every future choice, thought, and action. I mean, you name it, he knows it. His love is absolutely realistic, and he chose you anyway. That is love, unconditional love. Listen, I, my, my father was not uh, perfect, but I can tell you this. A lot of people don't experience what I experienced. I experienced a father's love. I know I'm loved. If he did anything right, he did that. I know I'm loved. I know when I walk in the door and I go, daddy oh, what's up? He's excited I'm there. He loves me. I've pushed him. I've tested his love, and it has remained. I am telling you, if you didn't have an earthly father who showed you that, you have a heavenly father who showed you that. We're gonna see how he showed you that because he gave an amazing gift. But the motivation for sending Jesus, the entire motivation for Christmas is love. For God so loved. What is the object of the love in that verse? For God so loved the world. The object of the love is the world. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that would have blown Nicodemus's mind. Because not only did he blow his mind by telling him that the way to salvation was to be born again, to start over anew. But now he is telling him that the scope of salvation is for the world. Listen to what Morris says in his commentary. The Jew was ready enough to think of God as loving Israel. But no passage appears to be cited in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world, it is a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all mankind. I am telling you, with every sentence, Nicodemus' mind is being blown. He shows up wondering about the kingdom, and he is told that nothing he has done has gained him entrance, he must start again. And not only is salvation something that is born of the Spirit, but it is offered to the world, not just to Israel. And so his mind is blown. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Listen, how did he demonstrate his love? He gave. He didn't just love, he demonstrated that love. He gave, and when you give, it is a gift, and the gift means it's what? For free, all right? If you pay for something, whether it be in money or service, you've paid for it. It's wages. It's not a gift. A gift is something we give with no strings attached, it's absolutely free, and it's actually something we receive. There are no human words that can adequately describe this gift, if you think about it. If you look at your Bible, John 3.16 has a cross-reference of 1 John 3.1. It's so fun to use your cross-references. Someday just sit down with your Bible and just go through them and just see what God reveals when you see cross-references supporting one another. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 says this. See what love the Father has lavished on us. That's all it says. See what love the Father has lavished on us. What kind of love? John 3.16. A love that gives its only son. That's what kind of love. It is lavished. He has lavished on us a love we cannot even describe. The only way you can describe it is this. He gave his only son I can understand that more today than ever before. Even Paul said that this gift had no words. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, and trust me, Paul had words. Paul could preach. It seems he had a word for everything. He had a description, an understanding of all things. If anybody could put something into words, it was Paul. And in 2 Corinthians 9.15, he said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I can't even put words to it. How do you even express a gift like this? I cannot help but wonder if Nicodemus' mind immediately went to Abraham. Think about it. He's just been in the Old Testament through conversation. Like the bronze serpent, the son of man must be lifted up, which takes him back to a story in the Old Testament of the bronze serpent. And now this verse says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you were a studier of the Old Testament, if you were a Jew, where would your mind go? Who is the father of the Jewish nation? Abraham. What is he known for? The fact that he was willing to give his only son. So his mind, all of this is connecting in the mind of Nicodemus. Hebrews 11, 17 through 9 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though Isaac shall be your offspring, by Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He gave God his son Isaac. Abraham gave God his son Isaac. The one whom God had promised would be the beginning of the nation. Abraham gave God his son, believing that he could raise him from the dead. In other words, believing that God was what? The resurrection and the life. It was through this act of faith that the nation was born. Do you understand that? The nation was born out of faith. It was not born out of works. Listen to Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God And it was counted to him or given to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is given as righteousness. He believed God. You want to know why you're going to see Abraham in heaven? It is not because he was Jewish. It is not because he was the father of the Jewish nation. It is because he believed God. He believed God. Looking forward to the cross, he believed God. It doesn't matter what side of the cross you're on. Do you understand that? Whatever the light, of, whatever the light has been shown in your life, you can either be looking forward to the cross and you may not have the details, but the light that you've been given, you believe God, it is given to you as righteousness. If you are us and we are on the opposite of the cross and we have all the detail and the full revelation, the truth is still this. In light of the revelation that we've been given by faith, we what? We believe God and it is given to us as righteousness. And this is exactly what happened with Abraham. He believed God. He looked and lived. By faith, Abraham was saved. The act of sacrificing Isaac, Hebrews 11 says, was figurative. In other words, what? It's figurative, but it still happened on the inside. He gave his son fully agreeing to put him to death and believing that God would raise him up. In other words, he truly experienced inwardly the death and resurrection of this promised son. Genesis 22 tells us that God provided a substitute. Do you remember the scene, by the way? It's the most beautiful story for you to sit and read with your grandkids or your kids. It is the best example of the crucifixion. You have a father and a son on a journey that only they could take up that mountain. All servants were left behind. It was the father and the son. The son carried the very wood that he would lay his life down on. Abraham carried the knife in the fire. And they would go up, and he laid his son on the wood. Isaac submitted. By the way, there was a really hard question on the way. Do you remember that? Father, where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And he said, the Lord will provide. And boy, did he. We're going to see it. He did provide. And that's why that's called the place where God provides. And he comes up and he lays his life down. And Abraham goes to kill his son. And instead, God stops him. And what is provided? A substitute, a ram. And it says that this ram is caught by his horns in the thicket. There's so much symbolism here, I can't even tell you, right? The thicket, in other words, thorns, represent the curse. The sacrifice is caught in the thorns, By its horns, okay? On the altar, when they would lay the sacrifice down, the altar had horns on each corner of the altar. That's literally how they tied the sacrifice down to the altar to be given, right? And so in other words, uh, and it represents Christ because he bore the curse, the thorns on his head. The thicket was on his head. He is the horn of our salvation. What tied him to the cross? His love. And so you have all of this beautiful symbolism going on in this story. God provided a substitute so Isaac would not have to be put to death. So ultimately, who is Nicodemus looking at? His substitute. The one that will be lifted up. The one that the only son that will be offered, all of this. Can you imagine over time after this conversation, all that is working in Nicodemus' mind, all the pieces that are being put together when he walks away from all of this conversation and he really ponders what it is that Jesus said, I would have loved to have seen as he's living life, he goes back to his old life and all of these pieces start to move together and he has all of these aha moments because we do know this conversation led to life change for Nicodemus. The sacrifice that would die for his sins was staring in his eyes. Because of God's great love for him, he would sacrifice his only son. His son would be raised up on a cross. The faith of Abraham would begin a nation. But that same kind of faith would be the entrance into the kingdom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who? Whosoever, whosoever believes in him Salvation is available to who? All. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough to encompass the vilest sinner. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So Paul is speaking and he's saying, listen, what I'm about to tell you is the real deal. It is truth. So listen to me. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why do you think he saved Paul? Well, I think one reason he saved Paul cuz you couldn't find any worse. Do you understand who Paul was when he was Saul? He was a mass murderer. That's what he was. He was a mass murderer of the innocent of the Christian, I'm going to tell you in that world, he would have been the vilest thing. And he is saying, I am here as a walking parable, walking testimony to tell you that I am proof that salvation is offered to all people because I am the worst of the worst. And so the offer is vast. The offer is broad but it is narrow enough to exclude any who reject him. John 3, 18, and we're going to look at this in a minute closely. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Here's the picture. The offer is broad. It's offered to everyone, but it's narrow in the sense that at one point, the decision comes down to the narrowness of you. If you reject, you do not enter. If you believe, you do. It's not a broad decision, it's a personal decision. That is why we must go through the narrow gate because each person has to decide what are they going to do with Jesus. It doesn't matter what your parents did, doesn't matter what your church believes, it is a personal choice. It is offered to the world, but it is a personal choice. Then we enter into the verses John three eighteen, And I'm going to tell you what, we're, this is some stuff right here. It's awesome. Oh, wait, I'm not even done. Y'all, why don't y'all tell me when I mess up? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whosoever would, what? Believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish. What's the assumption? Oh, by the way, you need to hear this. Believe means trust in, to rely on, to cling to. Trust in, rely on, to cling to. Can I just tell you that's way more than intellectual assent or agreement? Because I'm going to tell you what, when your world gets rocked to the core, that will be when you decide what you're clinging to. That is the test of your faith. Because if you truly believe it is the only way to life, no matter what is happening, whether you understand it or not, that is what you will cling to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what is the assumption there? That we're perishing. That's the assumption, that we are all perishing. Because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? That whosoever believes will not perish. So it is assuming that, That really, our situation is we are perishing. We are perishing. From the moment of our birth, due to the sinful nature of man, we have been caught in a current of destruction. Sin set these waves in motion. Yet, because of God's amazing, indescribable love, He sent us the means of salvation, His Son. What must we do to be saved? Grab it, get it, hold on to it, and never let go. And when you do that, this is the best part of all. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Let me read it to you in the message. It's my favorite. Once a person is with me, I hold on and never let go. How sweet is that? Do you know how important that is to me today? Because that means that when I grabbed on to salvation and I became alive in Christ Jesus, that means that I was given to the son and he grabbed a hold of me, and no matter how bad it gets, no matter if my hand is slipping, if my faith is slipping, his hand never slips. He does not let go. You wanna believe in the assurance of your salvation? That's a picture of it because your salvation, once you enter, he holds on. It is absolutely secure. And tell me this. Do you think a person can become alive in the spirit and then because based on works, they die? We're alive, then we're dead. We're alive, then we're dead. Is that how it works? No. You're born once physically and you are what? Born once spiritually. We are alive. We're still in the flesh and that's a problem. We have to have the light constantly coming in and we die to self and we live in Christ Jesus. But we are secure. We are saved because once he grabs hold of you, he will never let go. That's important. Do you know how many kids are out there getting saved six and seven times every time they go to something because they're so afraid that their behavior has disqualified them? No, he never lets go of what Christ has done you may have heard it before. After a few of the usual Sunday evening hymns, the church's pastor slowly stood up. He walked over to the pulpit, and before he gave his sermon for the evening, briefly introduced a guest minister who was in the service that evening. In the introduction, the pastor told the congregation that the guest minister was one of his dearest childhood friends, and that he wanted him to have a few moments to greet the church and share whatever he felt would be appropriate for the service. With that, an elderly man stepped up to the pulpit and began to speak. A father, his son, and a friend of his son were sailing off the Pacific coast. When a fast approaching storm blocked any attempt to get back to the shore, the waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, He could not keep the boat upright, and the three were swept into the ocean as the boat capsized. The old man hesitated for a moment, making eye contact with two teenagers who were, for the first time since the service began, looking somewhat interested in his story. The aged minister continued with his story. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life, to which boy he would throw the other end of the lifeline. He only had seconds to make the decision. The father knew that his son was a Christian, and he also knew that his son's friend was not. The agony of his decision could not be matched for the turrent of the waves. As the father yelled out, I love you, son, he threw out the lifeline to his son's friend. By the time the father had pulled the friend back to the capsized boat, His son had disappeared beneath the raging swells into the black of night. His body was never recovered. By this time, the two teenagers were sitting straight in the pew, anxiously waiting for the next words to come out of the old minister's mouth. The father, he continued, knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, and he would not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping in an eternity without him. Therefore, he sacrificed his son to save the son's friend. How great is the love of God that he would do the same for us. Our heavenly father sacrificed his only begotten son that we could be saved. I urge you to accept this offer to rescue you and take a hold of the lifeline he is throwing out to you in this service. With that, the old man turned and sat down in his chair as silence filled the room The pastor again walked slowly to the pulpit and delivered a brief sermon with an invitation at the end. However, no one responded to the appeal. Within minutes after the service, the two teenagers were at the old man's side. That was a nice story, politely stated one of the boys, but I don't think it was very realistic for a father to give up his only son's life in hopes that the other boy would become a Christian. Well, you've got a point, the old man replied. Glancing down at his worn Bible, a big smile broadened his narrow face, and he once again looked up at the boys and said, it sure isn't very realistic, is it? But I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. You see, I was the father, and your pastor was my son's friend. (sniffs) I cannot even relate to that because I can remember statements given to me when Zach died. Not that, you know, Zach gave his life like Jesus so that others could live. But I remember people saying to me, you know, oh, God's going to use Zach's life, his story, his service to lead people to Christ. Man, I wish I could tell you I cared. I didn't love you that much. I didn't. I cannot imagine throwing a lifeline to somebody else and watching your child die. I cannot imagine it. But since then, I wasn't given the choice. I have watched people come to Christ. And when I do that, I look at it and I go, Zach, see, we'll rejoice about this later. We will. Everlasting life, mm. everlasting life. What is the duration of God's love? Forever. It is a life with no time. When I think about time, quite often, I think of time as a prison. Right now, time is a prison. I have to endure it. Sometimes I have to get through an hour. Sometimes I have to get through a day or a season. It's, it's, I don't know if you've ever lived there, but it can be a prison. Just time Passing the time, getting through time. My life seems so long. But then I look and I think, wait a minute. Time is not a prison. Time is awesome. Time makes me think of hope because I have everlasting life, which means there will come a point where time what? Stops. And at that point, I mean, are you kidding? That means that everything we experience... Every pain, every sorrow, it has an expiration date. There is hope, and that gives us hope to continue to press through time. And it also shows us that time is short. You never know what's coming. And so the question is do you understand that God loves you so much that He did throw you the lifeline at the expense of His Son? You are dying. You are perishing. He came to give life salvation. What does it take to receive it? Grab it. Grab it when it comes. And when you do, He will hold on to you and He will never let you go. He has promised you everlasting life. John 3 17 through 18. He now starts to almost sound like we're in a courtroom. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Your Bible may say judge. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. And the word I want you to look at that I think is so important is in verse 18. Highlight it, underline it, circle it. The key word is already. Did you notice that? Jesus did not come to neutral people. He didn't come to neutral people In order to sway them to be pro-Jesus or against Jesus or pro-life and pro-death. No. He came to people who were already dying. Do you understand that? They were already dying. He came to people who were already condemned. Condemnation is merely the consummation of what was already started. He came so that we could choose life. He came to save us from death. That is a huge perspective you need to understand. He didn't come to judge or to condemn. That was already done. Sin produced that in us. We are dead. We are perishing. We are traveling the current to destruction. And so because of God's great love, he sent his son not to condemn. That would be redundant. To save. That is why it's called the good news. That is good news. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Let me give you some verses. John 5, 24. Sorry, I'm gonna sniff now forever on this video. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Romans 8, 1 and 33, 34. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who love Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is such a picture of the adulterous woman, is it not? He's like, huh, where'd everybody go? No one's here to condemn you? She's like, no. Who's the only one that had the ability to condemn her? Him. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. And he says, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. You will pass from death into everlasting life. He is on our team. Psalms 32, one through two. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He has come to make a way. That is the good news. Look at all the examples so far that have been given to Nicodemus. All of them say that. Everything that has been said so far in John is a picture of the fact that Jesus came to be salvation, not condemnation. Remember, John the Baptist looks at him and goes, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we hear that he is also, as the bronze serpent must be lifted up, so much so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So look and what? Live. And then we hear that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father sent so that we might have life. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. <clears throat> Yet quickly look or write out beside that, John 9 39. Because this is where it gets confusing. John 9, 39. We've gone here a few times. John chapter 9, we've gone here a few times. This is the story of Jesus healing the man born blind, right? We've talked about this before. But he says in John 9, 39, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. What? What? I just read to you all kinds of stuff that says that he did not come to judge the world, he came to what? Save the world. And yet if you come over here in John chapter nine, you see him say what? For judgment, I came into the world. So if you wanna be a shallow reader, you would go like, see, I told you the Bible contradicts itself, this is ridiculous. Okay, go a little deeper though. It gives us kind of a clue As to what the judgment is. For those who do not see may see, and for those who see may become blind. As we look, I believe we're gonna see that the judgment being talked about is a judgment happening inside of us. I'm gonna let that sink in. It is a judgment that is happening inside of us. When Jesus healed the blind man, it was a parable of this. Think about it. When he gave the man sight or light was given to him, that man chose to do what? See and believe. But yet those who claim that they already had spiritual sight, they refused to see what was lit up right in front of their face. And so they decided they would run back and remain in spiritual darkness. And that is why Jesus later on calls them blind guides, blind guides. So in verse 19 through 21 that we're going to look at, I believe he is describing a kind of judgment that happens when light comes into the world. It is a judgment that happens within our hearts. For the unbelieving, the light will send them running back to the dark. But for those who believe, the light will be like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which he calls the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So let's look at it. John 3, 19 through 21. Some hard stuff. You're like, no, it's not. It seems so simple. hmm And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light has come into the world. Who's the light? Jesus, we've talked about this quite a bit. In John chapter 1, it says that he was with God and that he was God. In 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light and there is no darkness in him. John the apostle says that he was the light of men. And he says that the darkness would not be able to overcome him. Jesus himself, well, and John also says, by the way, he's the true light. And that light has been given to everyone. Do you remember us talking about that? And then Jesus later in John chapter eight literally says, point blank, I am the light of the world. What does light do? It reveals. It brings clarity. Think about it. Think about creation. The very first thing that was necessary is what? Light. Then the divisions. Light. Light reveals. It brings clarity. So it says... This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people, okay? Now, when you look at your Bible, when it says and people, you're going to see a cross reference. So, the cross reference is going to give us an idea of, well, what kind of people? So, two of the cross references are Isaiah 30, I'm going to read you 8 through 11, and Jeremiah 5:31, 30 and 31, So Isaiah 30, 8 through 11, guess what the title of the section is? A Rebellious Generation. I'm going to read it to you in the message. It gets the point across. So go now and write all this down. Put it in a book so that the record will be there to instruct the coming generations. You need to write this mess down so your children pay attention to this. Because this is a rebel generation a people who lie, A people unwilling to listen to anything God tells them. They tell their spiritual leaders, don't bother us with irrelevancies. They tell their preachers, don't waste our time on impracticalities. Tell us what makes us feel better. Don't bore us with obsolete religion. That stuff means nothing to us. Quit hounding us with the holy of Israel. Jeremiah 5 31, 30 through 31. Unspeakable. Sickening. What's happening in this country? Prophets preach lies and priests hire on as their assistants. And my people love it. They eat it up. But the question? But what will you do when it's time to pick up the pieces? The light has come. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people, what kind of people? This kind of people. It gives us a list of what they're like. Some people, these people, look at the light and they decide, okay? They say, well, first off, the light reveals that their works are evil. And because their works are evil, they fear what? Look at the verses. 19 through 21 is where we are. Chapter 3, 19 through 21. Their works are evil, So their fear is that they will be what? Exposed. And because they are afraid that they will be exposed, they do what? They run back to the dark. Not only do they run back to the dark, there's emotion under this. It literally says they love the darkness. They love it. Because in the darkness, they can do what they want. And by the way, don't think that darkness just means secret. Because we all know today that there are sins out there in the world that are not secret. But just because they're public doesn't mean they're not in darkness. Because a public, uh, a world, a culture, a community can so cast out the light that basically it's other dark people watching dark actions and approving the dark actions because it justifies their life too. Okay, it's not about public, it's darkness, absence of light. They hate the light, it says. Therefore, they won't come to it. When the light of the world begins to shine in a person's life, it, is, it will either lead him to repentance or drive him further in the darkness. Because John Piper says, this is his quote, it is simply intolerable when our sinful works and thoughts and feelings are forced out into the light of Christ. We don't, it's horrible. Let me give you an example isaiah 6 5. what did isaiah say when he saw the lord he said woe is me for i am lost all that happened is the light shone. what did he see i am lost for i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts isaiah in the light of God, saw His condition. It was intolerable. Peter, the same. Luke 5:8, what happens? When there is a miraculous catch of fish, and Peter finally recognizes that God is standing in his boat, here is his response. Peter fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, "Depart from me, get away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." The light shines. And we will see with clarity our condition. Some will run back to the darkness. They love the darkness. They hate the light. Others, verse 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This, I'm going to tell you, this is deep. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The message says, but anyone working and living in truth and reality, not denial, they literally see it for what it is. They see the truth. They see the true condition, welcomes God's light so the work can be seen for the God's work it is. They welcome God's light. What does that mean? Well, the cross-reference is Psalm 139, 23 through 24. What does that say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. God, I know my condition. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have your way with me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. They go to the light. But there's a reason. Do you see it in that verse? What's the reason? Because I see the word so that. What's after it? They come to the light so that it may be clearly seen. So they have a passion about something being seen. What is it? that his works have been carried out in who? In God. They want it to be clearly seen that the work is all God and what? Not them. Grace, transformation, sanctification, it's a work of God, the Holy Spirit, not us. The difference between those in the darkness and those in the light, in the darkness, I'm king. I do exactly what I want to do in the dark. It's all about me. It's about pride. But for the person who has had their pride snapped in half, who realize that their only hope is grace, the one who grabs a hold of the free gift of salvation, they don't want you to see them, but Christ in them. They want you to understand that they have been changed by God and not themselves. I experienced this the other day with a friend. I don't know if it's a good example, but I just, it came to my mind. We were driving in the car, and I brought up a behavior I didn't like. (laughs) And we started to talk about it. And in that car was a number eight on the Enneagram that doesn't like to be controlled, and a number three on the Enneagram who can't help it, but slightly cares, not slightly, just flat cares about image, okay? And a behavior is being talked about. Well, when that gets brought up, because the three doesn't like the behavior and it might, it might rub off on her image. But an eight doesn't like to be told what to do. And so at first I got mad and I went back to my old patterns and I just looked out the window and I just went small and I'm just seething inside saying nothing. And then all of a sudden I thought, Shannon, look what you're doing. You're doing exactly what you were trained to do for 25 freaking years. Stop it. There are no babies in the back that care if somebody else. There is, you You be you. I know you don't like, Ashley don't like that, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? And I go, you know what? No, I'm not gonna stop talking about this. This bothers me. We're gonna talk this out. I am not gonna shut my mouth and just be mad inside. I'm not gonna do it. We're gonna talk this out. And he's like, wow. He's like, well, good, talk it out. I don't want you to sit there and see the inside. And I said, we need to talk this out. He said, okay, here's the deal. I don't want to be controlled, and you're worried about image. He said, let me ask you something. In the two years that you have known me, have I changed? Yes. Has it been kind of miraculous? Like, do we even know why? He said, have we just watched God just knock stuff off of me? And I went, oh, yes. And he goes, can you not trust him to do this? I'm like, rude. Rude. He goes, because I didn't do the other stuff either. He goes, because when I try to do something, I mess it up. And the only way it's ever truly changed me is when God does it, and I don't even know how he does it. But that way I can tell people, I don't know why I don't swear as much anymore, because God did it. I don't know why I'm not as angry anymore. God did it. I don't know why God did it. And he said, and this behavior, and I said, well, here's the thing. Yes, I do, but we have to come up with a compromise. (laughs) To where I let God do it, but God needs to do it. But you know, I don't want it out in the open. <laughs> but what I'm saying is those who are willing to go search me, God, know me, be transformed by the light, who choose to run into the light, they do that so that their life can be an example to the world. Yeah, I was filthy, I was horrible, I, I, I risked exposure so that you would understand what God can do in you, what God is capable of. That is the key. Let your light shine before man, so that may see your good deeds and give glory to who? To God. Wow, the light has now been shined on Nicodemus. Nothing you have done has gained you entrance. You must be born again. You must be born from above. Nicodemus, it is being provided for you. Look and live. Recognize what is killing you. Salvation is not earned. It is received. It is a gift from God offered to all, costly to God. What a message Nicodemus is receiving. God did not come into the world to condemn. We are already condemned. He came to save. The judgment is that when the light of the world comes, and he shines his light, we see clearly what we are. We will either choose to run back to the darkness because we love the darkness and we hate the light. We will be God of our own lives to our very destruction. Or we will run to the light and say, Lord, have your way. And when that happens, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit will begin to change a light so that others can see Christ in us. That is the beauty of these verses. This is what Nicodemus is hearing. And do you realize in closing, I know I'm three minutes late, in closing, this is Christmas. The light of the world has come. And I am telling you, darkness constantly tries to put out that light. We have put so much mess around Christmas that we can't even see the light. It began when the glory of the Lord shone to the shepherds. Salvation is here, the good news. When the light came and led the wise man, and even then the wise man worshiped and Herod ran to darkness. May the light of the world shine in you this Christmas because I'm telling you this message of salvation is one that the world needs to hear. You never know what's coming. Have you grabbed a hold? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. The gospel is good news. That's what it is, good news. And Lord, we know that salvation is a process that is worked out in our lives. Our salvation is secure, but our salvation is worked out by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And so God, may you continue even to a believer to shine a light on all the areas of our life that we need to say to you, Lord, know me, know my heart, search it, cleanse it, come in. And when you do that, I want others to see so that you receive the glory. Lord, at the end of days, I hope that I am one that stands up and you can say, look, look. Look what God can do inside a wretched sinner like her. We love you, Lord. Let us live the expression of Christmas. The light of the world has come. It's good news. And it was all motivated by love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at itsmaryshannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.